Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. To him be praise and glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for your attendance here in this meeting this morning, for your participation in the singing, for your interest in the lives of these young folks, for your support of the ongoing growth of the church. It says that he washed us from our sins in his own blood, referring to Jesus. Though your sins be as scarlet, we sang, in the words of the prophet, they shall be as white as snow. He washed us from our sins in his own blood. He also said that I will build my church. Nathan kind of took those thoughts from me. And I'm glad to be a part of that. I'm glad to witness that. And I'm glad that we together can witness that. But not just witness it, but I trust that we are partakers of it. We are members of that kingdom and stones in that building. I'd like to start the sermon with the um, passage in 1 Peter. That's not my main text this morning, but there's something there that I'd like for us to think about. 1 Peter chapter 3. You may turn there if you would. 1 Peter chapter 3, um, verses 18 and following. Now, Peter writes of Paul that some of the things that he writes are hard to be understood. I wonder what Paul would write of Peter if we were to ask him about this passage. I, I, I find this passage a little difficult to understand, at least parts of it. But I don't think that's the, um, the part we're going to get into this morning, where it talks in verse 19 about the spirits in prison and so on. There's some lessons here that I would like for us to, to think about, though. Verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth now also save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. 
the like figure whereunto even baptism doth now also save us. And this baptism, it says, saves us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now it says that um, this baptism was spoken of. There was a type of baptism that we should learn in the life of Noah. The long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was repairing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure, or that's a type of how baptism does now save us. So Noah's being saved through water, through the flood, by his act of faith is a signpost. It is a type of, it is a figure of baptism. Hebrews 11, verse 7, in reference to Noah, says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is by faith. So I suppose we could ask the question, what was it that saved Noah? And... The answer, I think, is clear enough. What saved Noah was his faith. What saved Noah was his belief in God. Think of it this way. And this is what I think is a good definition of faith or of belief. And that is a persuasion that what God says is true. We think of faith as something that is just kind of a pie-in-the-sky kind of thing, that if something is not realistic, then you have to accept it by faith. All right? That's not faith. That's just some kind of pie-in-the-sky thinking. It's just wishful dreams. That's all it is. Faith is accepting what God has said to be true. In Noah's case, the warning of judgment by water even though nothing like this had ever happened before, was to be heeded. He was persuaded that what God said was going to happen. And this wasn't just a brief, short spurt that he just kind of had an inspiration and all of a sudden he built the ark. That's not what happened. This took him a century to do. It took him a hundred years or more to build the ark. This warning motivated him the whole time. His faith moved him, moved with fear, it says. And that gives us the idea that Noah was sure that building the ark was the most circumspect, it was the wisest, it was the most prudent, and uh, it was the most prudent course of action. Noah Building the ark and being saved by his entering into it was the counterpart of baptism. His faith that moved him, Noah's faith, and his correspondent obedience is the type of baptism that we're considering this morning. His faith and his action were in unity. We get this a little muddled up sometimes. We seem to think 
that you can believe on you can believe one premise and act on another but that's just not true your actions reveal your belief your actions reveal your faith your actions reveal what you think about god with 100% accuracy there is never any deviation from that that's why it is perfectly legitimate to be saved by faith and to be judged by your works it's because there's no daylight between the two. Noah was convinced then, as we should be today, of God's judgment on sin. And just as Noah's faith moved him to build the ark, so will your faith respond to your baptism or by your baptism being moved with fear perhaps we don't really so but you could say I've never heard anybody say this before I don't think but you could say that baptism is a response to the warning of God's judgment if we think about how Noah's building the ark was a type of baptism perhaps we don't really like to think of obedience to God in terms like this maybe we'd rather think of obedience to God as a loving response to a loving God and fair enough that's true we love him because he first loved us but the former point is true as well God is an altogether just and holy and righteous being and he is altogether loving and tender and gracious these two characteristics of God are not at odds with each other his love is extended to all and he's not willing that any should perish but yet in that love in that perfect love there is a measure of perfect justice I like how our confession of faith kind of brings these two together there's an element of God's sovereignty of God's provision there's an element of man's choice there is an element of those two coming together all men without distinction if they are obedient through faith follow fulfill and live according to the precepts of the same are his children and rightful heirs having thus excluded none from the precious inheritance of eternal salvation except the unbelieving and disobedient the headstrong and the unconverted who despise such salvation and thus by their own actions incur guilt by refusing the same and judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life so it's I suppose it's a little bit of a different position than a lot of Christians take where we are by default estranged from God and I'm not necessarily picking this apart but but listen here and that is that you by your own choice depart from God and bring the subsequent judgment upon yourself God is God's invitation is open to all your response is your own and you can turn your back and bring the judgment upon yourself and so his wrath God's wrath is directed at the wicked and disobedient and his eternal love is directed towards the faithful and so we see just a glimpse of the fullness of the character of God in the offer of salvation both in his love and in his justice and even in his justice he offers a loving warning so baptism 
is the answer of a good conscience. It is God's question to you is, just like it was to Noah, will you place your faith in me? Baptism is the heart's yes to God's question. Baptism is the heart's yes to God's question, will you place your faith in me? It is a pledge of consent. I'm hearing what you say, Lord, and I'm pledging myself to you to do whatever you say. It is an act of obedience. It is also an appeal to God. God, you have promised to carry me through the judgment, and I am here doing what you are commanded. I am at your mercy, Lord. Lord, you take care of me. It's an appeal to God. Baptism is a mark of identity. So I invite your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the passage where I want to spend a little bit of time this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first 13 verses. Have you ever noticed how that God uses the course of history to teach us spiritual truth? That's the lesson here. Moreover, brethren, this is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would, not, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were written for our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for examples and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that ye may be able to bear it. God uses the events of history to teach us spiritual truth. Verse 11, these things happen unto them for examples. And they are written for our learning upon whom the end of the age is come. So there is a correspondence between the historical events and the spiritual truth that we should learn from them. The children of Israel's journey out of Egypt, they're going through 
the Red Sea. They're going through the wilderness and into the promised land is an interesting portrait, if you please, of the Christian life. Going through the Red Sea under the cloud, a type of baptism. Going through the wilderness for those 40 years is a type of us in our journey. However long our Christian lives may be. Crossing the Jordan River, the type of death. Going into Canaan, a type of the heavenly kingdom. Going through the Red Sea under the cloud was a kind of baptism. The children of Israel had been in bondage in Egypt. Their father Jacob had gone down there some 400 years before, 430 I think it was, when there was a famine in the land of Israel and Joseph had been there, sold by his brothers into captivity in Egypt. And God orchestrated the events of that time to bring about his purposes so that sometime later Jacob and his family would come down to Egypt and find corn and a place to eat instead of starving in the land of Canaan. And they were there for several hundred years. And it says there was a pharaoh who rose up, a king in in Egypt. That's what the pharaohs were. It wasn't a person's name. It was their title. The pharaoh didn't know Joseph. And he was hard on the children of Israel. It was becoming pretty obvious that these people were becoming stronger and they were reproducing faster than the Egyptians were, and they were healthier, and uh, their lifestyle was more conducive to they were to to robust uh, bodies, and they just eat the Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and so on. Were just they were they were just watching what's going on over going on over here in the land of Goshen with these Israelites. And they saw what was happening, and they knew that this was going to be a political crisis one of these days, so they said, we're going to make them work. We're going to make them work so hard that their strength is diminished and their numbers are uh, diminished. But their, their plan of subjugation didn't work out. It seemed like when they um, tried to kill the baby boys, it, that plan didn't work because it says the the Egyptian. I'm sorry, the 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 Jewish wives. They, they were lively and they had their babies before the Egyptian midwives could do anything about it. So on. God blessed them in the land of their captivity, and finally God brought them out after uh, under the hand of Moses, after the plagues and so on. And they'd come to the Red Sea. And Pharaoh, having hardened his heart those ten times before, hardened his heart one more time and went to pursue the children of Israel because he wanted them back after he had driven them out because the plagues were so devastating. And so there they were, the Red Sea ahead of them, the Egyptian army behind them, and they had nowhere to go. And they cried out to God. And God said to Moses, he said, Stretch out your rod over the water. And all that night there was a a strong wind blew and it parted the waters and the children of Israel were instructed to follow the cloud through the water. 
on dry land. There was a wall of water on each side. And they went through the Red Sea on dry land. Sea on each side and cloud above. It was a type of baptism. Now our text here in 1 Corinthians says that they were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. There's various different translations how it speaks of this baptism unto Moses. Into Moses is the most common one. They were baptized into Moses. There was one in an expanded version that I read, and it says they were shut up to Moses. In other words, they were enclosed together with him. They became identified with Moses. This was Moses, God's servant, the one whom God had appointed to face Pharaoh and demand his people's release, the one who was a very clear prototype of the Messiah that was to come. Moses himself said, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, God said to Moses, And thy brethren like unto me, unto him shall ye hearken. So there was a prophet coming like Moses. Moses was a type of the Messiah that was to come. The children of Israel had a very clear understanding of that and of how that Moses was God's servant and of God speaking to him. But to be baptized into Moses, to be shut up with Moses, was to be identified with him. There could not have been a more clear distinction made between the children of Israel and the armies of Egypt. So the children of Israel went through the Red Sea. And they were going through, and it seems like the Egyptians were hard on their heels. And God, it seems that God left just a little bit of mud come out, a little bit of water come out of the walls of those those walls of water, and it made the, it wasn't dry land anymore. It started getting muddy. And the children of Israel, the, the Egyptians' horses started getting bogged down, and their chariots started dragging hard, and their armies could no longer march. And they were kind of snagged in the mire with a wall of water on each side. How would you like that experience? And when the children of Israel were safely through, God closed the water in on top of those bogged down Egyptians. So there could not have been a more clear distinction made between the children of Israel and the armies of Egypt. The former, the children of Israel, were fleeing. The latter had been pursuing. The former were seeking freedom and the latter had been seeking to enslave the Israelites were saved miraculously, and now on the other side they were singing a song of deliverance, of salvation and of victory. And while the army that had been pursuing them was either in the bottom of the sea or dead on the shore. And this was the first exodus. The difference between the Egyptians and the children of Israel could not have been more stark. It was the... It was the difference between a dead Egyptian and a living Israelite. The difference, perhaps you could say, was as simple as which side of the Red Sea they were on, having been delivered through it or drowned by it. 
It was the same water. It's a lesson for us. There are two spiritual kingdoms in this world. The one is symbolized by Egypt, the other by Israel. And to be baptized into Moses was to be delivered. And so if we think about that in a spiritual sense, to be baptized into Christ, it's a text we'll look at here in a bit. To be baptized into Christ is to be delivered from sin. It is to be identified with the people of God. Baptism as God has given it and not as has been abused by so many throughout the history of the world is the answer of a good conscience. But baptism in and of itself without the answer of a good conscience, without repentance, can never change one from a heathen to a Christian as has been proposed so many times. But baptism as God has given it is the badge of the true believer. Baptism as God has given it when it is administered rightly. It belongs exclusively to those who have repented and believes, believed and whose names are recorded in heaven. And it is the label on every obedient child of God. It is the marker between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. This is the second spiritual exodus when one turns his back on the world and follows the cloud directed by the Spirit of God. It is the second exodus. The world and what it has to offer is to the believer as revolting as a dead Egyptian soldier washed up on the shore was to the recently rescued followers of Moses. That dead soldier stood for forced labor. He stood for coercion and hardship. He stood for throwing babies into the river. He stood for captivity and bondage. And just seeing him lay there washed up on the shore made the children of Israel's skin crawl. He was revolting. And so the world is to the believer because the world speaks of sin and its consequences. It speaks of death and destruction. Paul says it this way in Galatians 6. God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. So between the believer and the world there is a double crucifixion. There is a double death. The world to the believer, the believer to the world. To the believer... The things of the world speak of suffering and of cruel and long, drawn out, but inescapable death. To the world, to have to die to self, to die to recognition, to die to pleasure-seeking, and to lust is a kind of death that is unwilling and incapable of surrendering to. It is only to those who have renounced Satan, the world, and all the works of darkness, their own carnal will and sinful desires, that the cross is glorious. It is only to those whose knowledge has been renewed by the Spirit of God that this makes any sense. And so baptism symbolizes identity with the people of God as distinct and separate from the children of the world. It is only to those who have surrendered their will to God's will 
that the distinction between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of our Lord is welcomed. To those who have escaped Egypt and have set their eyes on the promised land, the difference is understood. It is appreciated. It is validated. Baptism speaks of that difference. It speaks of having been in bondage but now being made free. They were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they did all eat the same spiritual meat that speaks of the manna that God had given them. And it says they all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Just recently I heard and then I read that the Jews had, or perhaps still have a legend, that the rock that Moses struck, that produced water when there was none in the wilderness, actually followed them on their journey. Now the scripture doesn't bear that out, except for this little phrase right here that Paul uses. He says they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. So I don't know if the Jewish legend is true or not. But the lesson is this. That in the wilderness journey, and I told you what that is, it's the Christian life that we live. We have nothing to eat but what God gives us in that heavenly manna. We have nothing to drink of but that spiritual water, which is the rock, Jesus Christ. This is followed by a word of warning. It says that with many of them, God wasn't well pleased. So picture yourself, where you are in your life. This morning we're going to be baptized. We're going to be baptizing these young people. As followers of Jesus, as members of the body of Christ, you have been baptized and you are in the wilderness, so to speak. But it doesn't mean that there's not a word of warning for you. It says God wasn't pleased with many of them. And that displeasure serves as a warning for us. We shouldn't long for the wicked things like they did. They were discontent with the manna, the miraculous provision of angels' food that God had sustained them with. They wanted meat. I can identify with that. It's not much beats a good Steak, is there? So God gave them quail. But they didn't know how to control their appetites. He allowed them to be punished by their own overindulgence. They also worshipped the golden calf while Moses was in God's presence receiving the law. And 3,000 people died as a result of that. And then it says... um, Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed. They became involved with the Moabite prostitutes. Moses, uh, to try to solve that problem, he commanded the judge that the judges uh, bring out the offenders. And here it says that uh, 23,000 died. In the Old Testament, it says that 24,000 died. But you get the gist. Like, 
There's 20 some thousand people died at the hands of their brothers trying to bring justice and trying to get rid of this problem of the whoredom with the Moabite prostitutes. They were so, but they still didn't stop. They were so flagrant with their immorality that there was one man who advertised his wicked deeds in broad daylight in sight of the ones who were weeping over the condition of the children of Israel at the door of the temple or the tabernacle. I can't imagine. But this man and the girl he was with lost their lives at the hands of Phineas. I wish we would hear more about Phineas. He stabbed them both, I suppose, through at once, the way it reads. And his decisive action broke the tide of immorality that was sweeping through the people. And God established a covenant of peace with him that was to endure forever. And that was Phineas. Good for him. Neither let us tempt Christ. When they challenged the providence of God, he sent fiery serpents to destroy them. When they murmured, they were destroyed of the destroyer. And I'm not sure which occasion that's referring to. It could be one of several, I suppose. But all these things happen for our examples as a type, as a figure. And it says that they are written, they are recorded so that we can learn from them. And here's the lesson in that Paul wants us to get. He says in verse 12, Wherefore, let him that standeth take heed lest he fall. Just because you've started out on this journey, just because you have been baptized and you're identifying with the people of God, doesn't say that you will never have an opportunity to turn back. That you will never have an opportunity to fail. Take heed to yourself is the idea here. Wherefore, let him that standeth take heed lest he fall. But be encouraged. That is, every test that comes your way is something that is common to humanity. You are not alone in your struggle against sin and in your struggle against temptation. God is faithful. He will never allow something to come your way that is beyond your ability, he says. So bear up. Be strong. Be faithful. God allows tests. He allows temptations and trials to come your way. But in every situation, he provides you with a way through it. He provides you with a way of escape. There is no one who can defer responsibility here. That's kind of the, the, the hard side of it. But there, the encouraging and the, the good side of that is that there is no situation that comes your way that God will not give you the strength to get through, to get out of. So bear up, be strong, be faithful. And so to you seven this morning, your baptism isn't a kind of monopoly proceed to go and collect $200 kind of a thing. Your Christian life will not be a once, of a, once upon a time kind of fairy tale where they live happily ever after. No, it marks the beginning. Think of that. 
It's just the beginning. So your baptism is a line in the sand. It is a point of decision. There's this famous story in American history. about the Battle of the Alamo. The fort had been surrounded for 13 days by the Mexican army. And it was pretty obvious what was going to happen unless reinforcements come. Legend has it that Colonel Travis, who was in command, had a realistic grasp of the situation. So he drew a line in the sand He invited all the men who would stand for the cause of Texas to step across that line. And they all did but one. All those who stood with Colonel Travis died in defense of the fort. To be baptized is to signify... that you identify with Christ no matter what it costs you. It is to stand with him in temptation, not like the disciples who fell asleep during his agony. It is to stand with him in his trial, not like the disciples who forsook him except for Peter who denied him in his presence. It is to die with him. It is to bear his cross. And Jesus says, if you're not willing to do that, you cannot be his disciple. But it is also to live with him. Romans 6. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ we're baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Paul uses the term here as well, to be baptized into. It's the same idea that we looked at being baptized into Moses. And so the believer's baptism identifies the individual with Jesus' death. And since that's the case, it also identifies the believer with the resurrection. Just as Jesus received a new body, different from the one that he had before his resurrection, so the believer lives a different life after his baptism, after identifying with Christ than they did before. Before his death, his body was just like yours and mine. It was subject to becoming tired and hungry. It had all the vulnerabilities and appetites that we experience. But afterwards, the limitations that we experience, he didn't, did not exist for him. He had a body that was abundant to clear. If Jesus did not have a body, we don't have a physical resurrection to look forward to. But he had a real body. 
is the contention that Paul makes very clear. But the limitations of a physical body weren't placed on him. It was different. I think that the term Paul uses in 1 Corinthians in that great resurrection passage is an apt description. He says that there is a spiritual body. I don't know how to put that together. How can something be physical and spirit at the same time? We differentiate the two, right? But the resurrected body is a spiritual body. The life of the believer is a spiritual life. It is following Jesus. It is walking in obedience to his command. It is loving your enemies. It is blessing those who curse and hate you. It is returning hatred with love. It is sacrificing your possessions for the good of another. It is not even wishing to indulge your mind or your flesh. And a life like that isn't natural either. It's as unnatural as a spiritual body. It's as unnatural as a body without limitation. But that is the life that is renewed by the same spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead. Let's stand together, please.